0: Ave Maria Press has been publishing Catholic books and resources for more than 150 years, and they are located right on the north side of the Notre Dame campus. Visit AveMariaPress.com for a wide selection of spirituality books, classic Catholic literature, and even books for families. You can also find podcasts and free downloadable Catholic content. Visit AveMariaPress.com and receive 25% off your order with code Redeemer. Ave Maria Press, helping people to know, love, and serve God. Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame, and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and our listeners.
1: Each year, the so called June Court decisions from the Supreme Court garner quite a lot of attention, but few in recent memory have received close to the same level of attention as Dobbs v. Jackson, which effectively overturned Roe v. Wade. By this point, everyone knows about this decision, though fewer of us know, as much as we might, about the actual case that was before the court, why it was decided the way it was, and what this really means for abortion law going forward. To help us grow in our understanding of what has taken place and what is coming next or what's not coming next, I am happy to welcome back to the show Professor Rick Garnett of the Notre Dame Law School, who has become our show's resident expert on the Supreme Court and especially cases relating to religious liberty. While Dobbs was not a religious liberty case, a number of other cases on which the court ruled in the summer of 2022 were. To give due time to all these cases, my conversation with Professor Garnett will span two episodes. In this first episode, we focus on Dobbs. Then, in the next one, we'll talk about several religious liberty cases. A little more about my guest, who has joined me several times before. In addition to being a professor of law here at Notre Dame, Rick Garnett is also the founding director of the Program on Church, State, and Society in the Notre Dame Law School, as well as a fellow of the school's Religious Liberty Initiative. He has published widely, and some of his recent articles on the Supreme Court decisions have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg Law, City Journal, and the Daily News. As for me, I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life and the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm glad you're here.
0: Rick, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, Lenny.
1: So Rick, Dobbs v. Jackson, this is the case that grabbed the headlines this summer and the one that effectively reversed Roe v. Wade. I doubt anyone is unaware of the result of the court's review of the case by this point, but I suspect that many of us might need some help to understand what was involved in this particular case and why it ultimately amounted to a decision regarding Roe. Would you tell us about this case beyond what we tend to hear in the headlines?
0: Sure. So Mississippi enacted a regulation of abortion, and prohibited most abortions after 15 weeks of gestation. Now, that law is inconsistent with the Supreme Court's earlier precedents, including this case called Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which itself was an interpretation of the 1973 case Roe v. Wade. So everybody knew, I think, that Mississippi's law was inconsistent with those cases, and the lower courts— you know as you'd expect they said well <laughs> Mississippi's law is uh, invalid because it runs against those supreme court cases and once the supreme court decided to take the case it seemed pretty clear to a lot of us that the reason they took the case was to decide whether or not the Roe versus Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood system should continue there was some discussion about whether you could Allow Mississippi's law while still keeping Roe versus Wade and Chief Justice Roberts adopted that position Mm -hmm. in the Dobbs case. But most observers and also the parties on both sides of the case, they made it very clear to the justices that the way they saw it was either Roe and Casey stand or Roe and Casey go. If you want to uphold the Mississippi law, again, the 15-week ban, you're going to have to uh, invalidate Roe and Casey. And so that's what the justices have done. They they ruled in Dobbs. Six of the justices agreed that the Mississippi law was okay. Five of the justices said explicitly that Roe and Casey were wrong the day they were decided and that although usually the court defers to pass precedents even when they might be disputed, that in this case, it was appropriate to overrule those cases. And the result of that, it's not that abortion is banned in, in – in a lot of states, the law of abortion doesn't change at all. California right. doesn't change at all. Right. What the effect of the decision is is to say states, Congress, if you want to, you can now legislate on this question. Mm. And so some states uh, already have. Mm-hmm. Some states will have stricter regulations on on abortion than others. You know, New York probably won't change its law at all. Right. Remains to be seen what Indiana will do. But the, the upshot of Dobbs is, again, it's contrary to what some – commentators said it's it's not a ban on abortion it's a return of the abortion question mm. to the political debate and you know one possibility is that we get kind of a patchwork in the united states which could be kind of unstable right another possibility although i don't think it's likely to be honest is that we get kind of an equilibrium sort of like what exists in europe where you know U- europe has much more restrictive abortion laws than we do america's abortion laws were more permissive than most places in the world that, you know, public opinion in the country tends to be in favor of some abortions early, but against abortions late, this new decision Dobbs would permit that to come into practice. But I, I suspect that what's more likely is we'll get the the patchwork. The
1: patchwork. Yeah. Are there any states that don't have any laws at all? And what happens if a state doesn't have a law on the books? Is abortion permissible? Is it non-permissible?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I I don't believe there's any state that doesn't have some law in the books. The wrinkle here is that – or a footnote to what I just said is that what some states had, they had laws in place that said something to the effect of if Roe v. Wade is ever overturned, Uh we want to bring back our regulations. I see. So what's happening in some states right now since the Dobb case happened is that there's been some fighting about what what does it mean to bring back these old laws? Mm. But a state like Virginia, New York, Illinois, California—they have very permissive abortion um, regulation systems, and those those are untouched right. by this. Yeah,
1: I'm sort of curious about Chief Justice Roberts here. If you could, maybe this is a little bit of too specific and too particular, but I'm curious about it. What was his argument for trying to just make a decision on the Mississippi case and not have this touch Casey and Roe?
0: Yeah, so there's there's a there's a big picture dimension to what he's doing I think and then a more focused one. So the big picture thing is that the chief justice has shown us I think repeatedly that he's he's concerned with his understanding of the of the role of the court and of public perceptions of the court. And so I think what he indicated to us was that he thought that if it was possible to uphold the Mississippi law without overruling Roe itself, mm-hmm. that would be the better way to go, that in his view, a more kind of incremental step-by-step approach would be better. I mean, all the evidence we have is that Chief Justice Roberts is personally pro-life, not that that should matter to his judging. But also, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that he thinks Roe was wrong. Right. But uh, he was looking for a way to have the movement on the abortion question be more of a step-by-step thing. Mm-hmm. The, the problem, from my perspective, obviously others disagree is that the, the, the position he tried to stake out, in a sense, it it doesn't solve any of the constitutional, logical problems with the original Roe v. Wade decision. He's, he's still saying, well, if we squint and we look at Roe <laughs> and Casey in a certain way, we can say that you can get rid of Casey's viability line. That's what Casey had said. Mm-hmm. You can you know, regulate after viability, not before basically – But you could still preserve some right to abortion. He called it a a right to a fair opportunity to have an abortion. And and in his view, well, the Mississippi law was consistent with that because basically Mississippi says 15 weeks, that's a fair opportunity. Now, you can imagine a legislature coming to that decision. I mean, it wouldn't be one that would please me as a bioethics matter, but you can imagine a legislature doing that. But as a legal matter, and my colleague at the law school, Sharif Gerges, has written really well on this, but it just – the argument just doesn't work. And again, I'm actually sympathetic to the chief justice's concerns about the court's reputation and its institutional position. But uh, I think the position he landed on in this case just couldn't couldn't stand. It was yeah. too unstable.
1: Yeah. What, what does this mean for the doctrine of stare decisis? We're, we hear this a lot. It comes up in confirmation hearings with justices when they're – candidates for the court when they're when they're nominated nominees for the court it's been bandied around recently that you know, this is a violation of the doctrine of stare decisis tell us about that and what is your view on the
0: standing of that yeah so uh, apologies for being kind of a, a geek on this Give matter it to but, us. This uh, we, but uh, i mean uh, you know stare decisis is a fancy lawyer way of saying that generally speaking the court should follow its past precedents mm-hmm. And there's a lot of good reasons for that rule. Uh, You want stability. You want predictability. People need to be able to organize their affairs. You don't want Supreme Court doctrines swinging back and forth with the composition of the court. And and there's something to the idea that the law does sort of develop through uh, through time. It builds on past precedents. So everybody agrees or almost everybody agrees that there's a role for stare decisis, that generally speaking, courts should follow past precedents. But the thing is, and I'd say this in response to the critics of Dobbs, nobody believes the court should never overturn its precedents, mm. right? I mean, nobody thinks we should stick by Dred Scott or Plessy versus Ferguson or what have you. And you know, the the dissenters in Dobbs, they've voted to overrule cases in the past, and the people who are criticizing the court today have a long list of cases they'd like to see the court get rid of, you know, the the gun rights case or the campaign finance case or what have you. So it's it's important to kind of to appreciate the fact that stare decisis arguments are not always deployed consistently. Right, right. right. So that in the Dobbs decision, you know, Justice Alito, he went through the standard canonical factors that the court's been using to decide when it's appropriate to overturn a case. And it's pretty, I mean, I thought he was pretty clear about this. You don't overrule a case just because you think it might have been wrong, right? The language they use is, you know, was it egregiously wrong? Do mm-hmm. we have more facts than we used to have? Has the previous decision proved unworkable? and has the has the previous decision been remained contested right some 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 things are controversial and then they're kind of settled. So just for example, you know in the United States, it was very controversial when the Supreme Court got rid of prayer in public schools, calls to impeach the court and so on. Most people, including people who are very uh, religious. Are kind of reconciled to those cases. Yeah. There's no movement to overturn those cases. I think the same is true, frankly, with the decisions about things like a legal right to contraception. Uh, there's no movement to unsettle those. Those haven't remained controversial, and so on. But the but Roe and Casey, or at least this is what the the Dobbs majority thought. This has been contested ever since. Right. Not just you know the marches for life, but but think how much how often courts have been asked to decide these abortion cases. All, it's been in tumult ever since. And so I think the majority said, given that, we don't really need to treat Casey as, as settled in this way. And therefore, it's appropriate if we think that it was wrong, and not just wrong but egregiously wrong, mm-hmm. to discard it. Now, it, uh, this doesn't mean that the court's out of the abortion business. I mean, there's going to be a whole lot of litigation about the effects of this ruling and a, you know a bunch of uh, kind of ancillary issues that we can talk about if you want sure. about you know regulating abortion drugs or interstate, interstate commerce stuff, and all yeah. this kind of stuff it 's going to be interesting <laughs> from a lawyer 's perspective but on on the, the starry decisis point, I think it would be a mistake for listeners and for kind of citizens to think, oh that you know the justices said they don 't care about precedent i mean that 's not true. they spent most of the opinion justifying, trying to justify their conclusion that in this particular case, uh, Roe needed to go. This is
1: Leonard DiLorenzo, and you're listening to Church Life Today on the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm talking with Rick Garnett, professor of law and concurrent professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame, where he's also the founding director of the program on church, state, and society, and a fellow of the Religious Liberty Initiative. Professor Garnett is helping us review the Supreme Court's summer 2022 decisions. This is the first of two episodes in our conversation, and this one is focused squarely on Dobbs v. Jackson, which reversed Roe v. Wade. Now, many critics of Dobbs have claimed that this is perhaps the supreme example of judicial hubris and overreach. Is there an opposite case to be made that, Is there a way of seeing this as actually an exercise in judicial modesty?
0: Well, you said it. Well, Lenny, uh, I I think so. My view would be more that Roe and Casey were dramatic examples of judicial hubris. So in Roe, a bunch of unelected judges looked at the abortion laws of almost every state in the country – and without any textual basis in the constitution and without even really giving us a clear theory of why they were doing what they were doing, it was a pretty thinly reasoned case, everybody admits. They invalidated the laws of almost every state. Hmm. And that decision, as as you know, that upended our politics. It caused, many would say, pretty dramatic realignments between the parties and so on. It's infected the judicial confirmation process ever since. It was a dramatic sort of power move by the court and even Justice Ginsburg, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, the former justice, she, she commented that Roe was an overreach and she obviously su- – I mean she supported abortion rights but she said Roe went too far too fast mm. and it was – again, because it wasn't well-reasoned, it never really built up support. and Then Casey also, you talk about hubris. I mean in Casey, the justices who were kind of the swing group, there were three justices in the middle who reaffirmed Roe even though they – Permitted some restrictions on abortion. Their argument was basically: we're the court; we are telling you to stop arguing about this. That was wow. I'm paraphrasing it. Yeah, right. But that was kind of that was kind of it. It was that it's it's the obligation of good citizens to just take the court's word for it and go away. And that, so that strikes me as a pretty hubristic way of thinking about the court's role. Dobbs, by extension, it's not activist or – it's not imposing anything. Dobbs doesn't say what the law of abortion should be. All it says is that the the law of abortion should be up to politically accountable actors. There are many on the pro-life side who think Dobbs doesn't do enough, Mm. right? Because it it leaves it wide open for California and New York to have maximal – Mm-hmm. abortion regimes. The court doesn't say that the unborn child is a person. The court doesn't say that the equal protection clause requires states to protect unborn children or to regulate abortion. It really is, in a sense, the, the most modest decision possible in that it says we are not – this isn't up to us. Mm. We weren't elected. The constitution doesn't speak to this. Obviously, there are some times when the court has to, in a sense, impose its will on democracy because you know we have a bill of rights and we've – We've removed some things from politics. We're not going to have votes on whether you know you can get rid of the freedom of speech or not. That's in the Constitution. But I think the the Dobbs majority is saying abortion is not one of those things that we the people decided to take out of politics. And so, given that Roe and Casey were the overreaches, and we are just returning this to the to the place where our Constitution leaves it, and it might be messy, but politics is often messy. Mm.
1: Now, you clerked for Chief Justice William Rehnquist during the 1996 term of the Supreme Court, and in an article I read from you recently in the City Journal from late June 2022, you spoke of how the Dobbs ruling wasn't a way of vindication of Rehnquist's prior dissents in Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Dobbs was, as you put it, a sign of Rehnquist's long game well played. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, and obviously listeners can um, probably decide how biased they think I am. (laughs) I did did work for the former chief justice and and think highly of him. So he dissented as a very junior justice, the most junior justice, in the original Roe case. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't, so far as I know, a particularly committed sort of religious conservative or anything like that. But his view was – kind of to our earlier point, the court was just overreaching here, that this was not something the constitution spoke to and that the court was behaving more like a legislature. He and Justice Byron White, who was a Kennedy appointee, had an, a joint opinion where Justice White called it an exercise of raw judicial power,
1: mm-hmm. which
0: I think is is a fair characterization. And Then throughout the 70s and 80s, then Justice Rehnquist mm-hmm. often – well, he always maintained that position and voted to uphold state regulations on abortion. And by the time we got to Casey, a lot of people expected that that would be the, the time when Roe got overturned. There had been a bunch of Republican appointees and it appeared to be the case that there was a majority to overrule Roe. But I mean to the surprise of many people, they, they didn't overrule it. They sort of reworked it. And Rehnquist dissented again and he sort of set out a what I regard as kind of a roadmap for the argument Against Roe, that is, in favor of overruling it. But it was a dissent, so right. you know, that and 10 cents will get you a cup of coffee. And then you fast forward you know, 30 years since Casey, and I think it's fair to say that Justice Alito's majority opinion in Dobbs follows pretty closely the roadmap that Rehnquist laid out in his dissent in Casey three decades ago with the addition of a case – that was decided in 1997, and that was the year I worked for the for the court. A case called Glucksberg, which had to do with assisted suicide. That case was really important in Dobbs because uh, back in Glucksburg, some people had argued that there was, you know, because there's a constitutional right to abortion, it should follow that there's a right to euthanasia, mm-hmm. that you know, autonomy. Mm-hmm. Right? And the court rejected that. And Rehnquist wrote the opinion and said, "Look, it's true." We, the court, have said in the past that there are some rights that are not mentioned in the Constitution, but they're still protected. The right to choose an education for your children and the right to marry. But he said the right to assisted suicide is not one of those. The right to assisted suicide that's being claimed here, he said, is a dramatic departure from the criminal law that we've had in our system forever. That opinion, again, about a different issue, but Justice Alito used that, reclaimed it, and said – the same thing is true here. That just as in Glucksburg, there wasn't a tradition of, of, of a right to assisted suicide, it turns out when you look at the history that you know, there was no – nobody ever thought there was a right to abortion before Roe v.ersus Wade created it. And so yeah, between his dissents in the abortion cases and his majority opinion in the assisted suicide case, I think you can kind of look back and see that oh, you know, the late chief justice sort of supplied all the building blocks for the opinion mm. that this new majority handed down. You mentioned with former Chief Justice
1: Rehnquist that, as far as you know, he wasn't a religious conservative. It wasn't fueled by a firm religious conviction, his opinion on this case. The original dissenter, you could say, to Roe v. Wade. It has come to be the case, I think we all know, that of the justices who rule against, in this case, Roe by their decision in Dobbs – they're usually presented as imposing religiously conservative view on the American public. Perhaps the imposition of Christianity and Christian moral values upon the entire nation. How do you respond to that? You know a lot. I mean, and now you know some of these justices personally. Worked with one of the justices in the law school. What do you make of that
0: charge? Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to say that. The late Chief Justice Rehnquist wasn't a religious man. He was a Lutheran, and I think uh, he was a church-going Lutheran. And I think he, I think he was a person of faith. But I think the his view on the abortion case had oh, nothing that, to do with that. Thanks yeah. for that clarification. And I think, but it's a good, it's a good segue because I think now too, the, the charge that you mentioned I think is is unfair in at least two respects. So the first one is again, the Dobbs decision doesn't impose anything. Uh-huh. It does not dictate what the rules of any jurisdiction on abortion should be. The, the people in any state retain the right to decide that they want to have a very permissive abortion law. So you know, all the kind of handmaid's tale stuff, it's, 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 it's silly to be honest. The second level of the response I guess I'd say is while it is true and I think it's actually interesting that you know, we now have a majority of the justices who are baptized Catholics. You think about – just in this in this uh context of American history, right. how bizarre that a is. Thing. we used to be there used to be a Catholic seat At the time of the revolution we are about to celebrate our independence. There were states that didn't let Catholics vote yeah so so that's a dramatic change and again it, it is interesting but i I think it's a it's it's a mistake to think that because these justices are catholics or because we think they embrace the church's teachings about bioethics and life that they're just using the judicial role to impose that i'm not a bioethics expert but i know that you and i both know people who are mm-hmm. my view though is that you know the the case for regulating abortion is not a religious argument any more than the case for you know banning pollution or banning discrimination is a religious argument i mean sure it 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 is consistent with many people's religious beliefs but nobody is saying that the reason we should regulate abortion is because you know, of this particular religious text or this particular revelation or this particular religious teaching. There are The arguments about human dignity and equality and fetal development, mm-hmm. those are no more religious than the arguments that underlie arguments for the minimum wage. So I, I feel like … Sometimes the critics of the abortion decision, I wonder if they've thought about the implications of their argument. I mean do they really want to say that you can't have any policies that rest on moral arguments because that's going to sweep out a lot of our sort of social safety net, our environmental regulation, our anti-discrimination law. All of those rest on moral premises. They're not coming from – religious authorities as dogma, but they are coming from premises about you know, the, the equal dignity of every human person. Mm. And I don't think that people who oppose abortion should feel at all kind of uncomfortable or apologetic about, about that fact. But the legal question has nothing to do with that. The legal question is not, is abortion right or is abortion wrong? It's, did the constitution remove the abortion regulation question from politics? And all that Dobbs says is, no, it didn't. Go to it. Right.
1: This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life today on the Spoke Street Media Network. My guest is Rick Garnett, professor of law and a current professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. He's also the founding director of the Program on Church State and Society and a fellow of the Religious Liberty Initiative. Together we're talking about the Supreme Court's summer 2022 decisions. We're beginning in this first of two episodes by focusing on Dobbs v. Jackson which reverse Roe v. Wade. Now, Rick, there's been some talk of other rulings that perhaps may be challenged now that the court has previously decided on, one that would come to the fore perhaps as Obergefell v. Hodges in which the court held that the 14th Amendment requires states to license and recognize same-sex marriage. Do you think rulings like that are now more likely
0: to be revisited? I think they're not, but it's it's a fair point for critics to say – That Roe versus Wade rested on or assertedly rested on a theory that's similar to the theory that was underlying some of these other cases. So Griswold about the right to contraception. Pierce versus Society of Sisters about the right to educate your kids in a private school. Obergefell, the same-sex marriage case. So so there is a connection. That's, That's a fair point. The things that should be said in response, I think, first, the the majority in Dobbs, as it's overruling row, explicitly states we don't think and we're not saying that those other cases should be called into question. Mm. So there's no green light for any lower court to change anything about those rulings. And Justice Kavanaugh wrote a concurring opinion where he was even more kind of direct on this point that those cases aren't touched by this. Mm some of the talk has been as a result of uh, justice thomas's concurring opinion where what what he said and this is consistent with kind of a broader jurisprudential view that he has and that he's discussed in a lot of contexts but it's been misunderstood he he didn't say that the results in these other cases you're talking about should all go but he does have a view that the particular legal theory it's called substantive due process That a lot of those cases rested on is unsound. He he does believe that the constitution protects some um, what we call unenumerated rights. That is, he thinks there are some rights that are protected even though they're not mentioned specifically in the constitution. So he's firmly committed, for example, to the court's decision saying that state governments are not allowed to prohibit marriage between persons of different races, for example. But he has a different theory about where those rights come from in the constitution, a different clause. It's kind of a technical, again, law geeky issue. But I think a lot of the press coverage made it sound like Justice Thomas says he wants to reverse all those cases, which, again, was was inaccurate. He, he did say he wanted to re-theorize all those cases. Mm-hmm. And it might well be that some of them come out differently in his view. But if you go back to the Dobbs majority and remember our discussion about stare decisis – one of the considerations that the court was very explicit on is just because you think a case is wrong, yeah. you don't necessarily overrule it if it's been settled. And another factor, which I didn't mention before I should have, is the court has said if – what they call reliance interests. If, if a lot of people have invested and relied on a particular decision – you don't then pull the rug out from under by you know, resetting things. Mm-hmm. The, now, the court didn't think that was true of Roe. But – so speaking with a focus on the Obergefell case, which a lot of people have been talking about, it seems to me that it's really clear from the majority that the reliance interests inquiry would come out pretty differently mm. with respect to that case. And, and then another point is just the political reality is that there actually isn't any – Unlike with Roe, we've had you know marches for life every year for fifty years almost. People disagree about the Obergefell decision, but there doesn't seem to be any sustained you know political interest in, in in undoing it. So I guess just to circle back, I do think it's fair for some critics to say, hey, you know, when you overrule Roe and Casey, you are calling into question, at least in theory, some other cases that were similarly reasoned. But if you read the opinion itself, the justices went out of their way, I think, to say we are not reopening those other cases.
1: Understood. To go back to Roe, I think you've said here and in, in the, the majority opinion held that this was not just wrongly decided but egregious in its decision. Do you have or have
0: you heard the best possible defense of Roe? Uh, well, so Roe itself – Even by folks who support abortion rights, is is rarely defended on its on its own reasoning. Because the way Roe proceeded was, and you know, it was a, a different time, but they invoked a kind of. Uh, a capacious idea of a right to privacy, and then they said the doctor-patient relationship comes under that, and it was very much a function of that. Was the theory was it was very much about the, the privacy of the doctor-patient relationship? Uh-huh. It's interesting. Justice Blackman, who wrote the opinion, had an affiliation with the Mayo Clinic, and he was really interested in this idea of the role of the doctor. Uh-huh. The better argument, as just uh, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued, I think would be to say something like that some kind of an abortion right is rooted in the equal protection guarantee that because only women get pregnant and because the impacts of unexpected or perhaps unwanted pregnancies are so much stronger for women that women's ability to participate as equals in the marketplace and in political life depends on them being able to have the final say about about pregnancy. I think most – People – and again, I I, I welcome the Dobbs case. I think Roe was wrong. But most people on my side, quote-unquote, would say that that's much stronger than what was argued in Roe. I think it's also stronger than the argument that was given in Casey where – in the Planned Parenthood versus Casey case, the way justices formulated it is like there's a general right to autonomy – and this is part of that. Hmm. But again, autonomy is such a broad idea right. and, and the, the reality is we don't give people autonomy on everything. Right. So I, I think that the, the equality between men and women argument is the stronger one. And I think that's actually opinion that's pretty broadly shared on the pro-choice side too. Hmm.
1: Well, we're coming to an end of at least this part of our conversation. You've agreed to stay around. We'll talk about some of the religious liberty cases that were also decided this summer. But – before we leave dobbs behind i mean we're we're not leaving it behind for sure but in our conversation what do you expect to happen next around abortion from a legal
0: perspective yeah so a couple of things to keep an eye on one is that you know we the united states is a federal system and every state has its own constitution and some states have said that their own state constitutions confer a right to abortion and if a state says that, there's nothing that Dobbs can do to change that. Mm. So you're, you are you're going to see I – mean, again, some states have already said this. But you're going to see litigation in state courts challenging abortion regulations on state grounds. And because in a lot of these states, including some so-called red states, the the courts are sometimes more progressive than the populations. Right. You, you could get a situation where a state legislature enacts an abortion regulation and the state court strikes it down. And again, Dobbs has nothing to say about that. Okay. A second issue to keep an eye on it just has to do with kind of garden variety FDA approval and regulation and so on. So you know, a, a large percentage of abortions today are carried out via abortion drugs and these have been approved but the approval has generally been contingent on a lot of medical supervision and so on. I think you will see a move to make the FDA and just the federal government generally very supportive at least in the current administration of abortion drugs and then what will happen in states that try to prevent the importation of abortion drugs or the sale into their states I See, because the federal government generally can preempt state laws that conflict with it. So that will be a problem.
1: Um, and just to, so, just to ask a question about that, so are those the kind of cases that could then find their way back to the Supreme Court if they're about these issues of interstate commerce whereas the first type that had to do with state constitutions – Am I right in
0: assuming that those would not then? They would, you, you're to the exactly Court? right. Yeah, okay. I mean, we've seen this in other contexts that if if you repackage a claim as a as a purely state law claim, unless it violates a federal right, it's not going to go up. Now, okay. there are those who think that the Constitution that it violates the right of unborn children to, to permit abortion, but that's not the law yet. Yeah. So, and there's the drug thing, and the the third thing I would just urge people to be following is you know the federal government spends a lot of money, including on health care, and it attaches conditions to the money that it spends, to the grants that it gives, to the research contracts that it gives, to, to Medicaid, mm-hmm. and so I, uh, and that gives the government a lot of leverage. And I predict, at least in the current administration, again, this, these can always change. I suppose you will see efforts to attach, kind of, you know, to hospitals say, if you want Medicare money and hospitals can't function without it, right, or you want Medicaid money, right. then you have to permit the full array of uh, abortion-related services. The hospital does. The hospital does, exactly. Or the state doesn't have to decide it then for the hospital. or Right, but then the, the, then the question would be, well, would a state be willing to shut its hospitals out uh, of receiving those kinds of funds because it would reduce the available healthcare in the state? Okay. So it's kind of a leverage. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, then, and the fourth possibility, I should have got ahead of myself, but in theory, Congress could pass you know, or try to pass a nationwide one-size-fits-all abortion regime mm-hmm. I don't think the votes are there and the senate is you know interesting and the filibuster and all that good stuff but but the, the democrats in the house of representatives have passed a law that would have required every state allow abortions very liberally like very late into the term and to provide public funding and to remove conscience clauses and all that again that hasn't passed and I don't think it will mm-hmm. but in theory it could and if it did Dobbs doesn't say
1: anything, doesn't about, say anything that. about it. exactly okay well my guest has been Professor Rick Garnett like I said he's going to stay around we're going to do a second part of our conversation we're going to focus on some of the religious liberty decisions from the 2022 June court Rick thanks so much for this first part of the conversation thank you and thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life Today
0: Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame, and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners.
1: This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.
0: Elevate 150 Financial Checkups at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Here's how it works. Go online and schedule a 30 minute phone call. They'll guide you through your credit report to find ways to improve your financial health. Then they'll send $150 in your name to Redeemer Radio. For information, visit NotreDameFCU.com slash elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Fcu.